Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and for the first full episode of Season 3, I am joined by the chef and owner of one of my absolute favorite restaurants in all of New York City. Let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome back to the Chef Demoni Podcast. If you're a longtime listener, you'll have noticed a new voice in the introduction to the episode. Season three just seemed like the right time to make a change, so I hope you're enjoying the new Chef Demoni announcer. And if you're new to Chef Demoni, welcome to the show. The Chef Demoni Podcast, it's all about food, but really more than that, this show is about people. It's about people and their stories. My guests tend to be chefs and lawyers, and that's really just because I've done both of those jobs over the years. So many of the people that I know are either chefs or they're lawyers. So those are the people I tend to speak to. The chefs, of course, know all sorts of things about food, but lawyers have got a lot of opinions on a lot of topics, and food is definitely one of those topics. In any case, what has been happening since we last spoke? Well, last Thursday, my wife and I went out in our little town of Gibsons, British Columbia, on the Sunshine Coast here in BC. And the reason we did that was because an awesome local food business called Salt and Swine, they were doing a gig at one of our local craft breweries. So how could we resist? We picked up some incredible food. I had the pulled pork sandwich, which was delicious. A side of mac and cheese, also delicious, and most of my wife's garlic fries. All of the food was outstanding, and we took it inside uh, Tapworks, inside the brewery, enjoyed the food with some delicious beer and some great live music. So it was a really, really fun night, and we were still home by about 10 p.m., so all good. That is about perfect in my world. Salt and Swine, they've got some really exciting things coming up in their business, so I'm definitely going to try to speak to them soon. I would love to share their story with you here on Chef Timoni. And speaking of great food, of course, today I will be speaking with the chef and owner of one of my absolute favorite restaurants in New York City. That would be Persena, and all I will say about that restaurant before we hear from today's guest is, if you go, have the anelone. Simply incredible. So today I will be speaking with Chef Sarah Jenkins, who is both the owner of Porcena and of Nina June Restaurant in Maine. You'll hear over the course of the interview today that I learn how to pronounce Porcena. I was originally calling it Porcena. In any event, Chef has got a really fascinating story. She grew up for part of her childhood in Tuscany. It sounds absolutely idyllic, as you'll hear, like something out of a movie. She also spent part of her childhood in Rome, and Chef talks about waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning to the smell of baking bread, and then taking the dog out for the dog's walk, that was her job, and picking up two rolls at the bakery for her and her brother's school lunches. Well, after a lot of experience in Italy and and really around Europe, Chef returned to the U.S. in 1981, and she found that the food there didn't quite taste the same as it had in Italy, certainly. So Chef talks today about not understanding Italo-American or Italian-American food on a number of different levels. Uh, Ultimately, she did do some cooking in the U.S. in Boston when she started, then she returned to Italy, cooked there for a while, but then realized that as an American chef, she was going to have more opportunity in America. So Sarah returned to the U.S. once more. 
She started cooking in New York City upon her return. And we have this really interesting discussion uh, during that part of her career around this whole notion of authenticity in food. Sarah talks about her experience and knowledge of ribolita, for example, a Tuscan dish. And there's a really fun, surprising story about just what went into an eggplant parmesan dish in Italy. Anyway, a really, really fun discussion around just what it means to have, to be, to cook authentic food. In any event, I'm just delighted that Chef accepted my invitation to appear on the show today, and I want to get right to our talk. So join me now. Here's my talk with Chef, cookbook author, restaurant owner, Sarah Jenkins. Well, listen, Chef Sarah Jenkins, thank you very much for taking the time to meet up uh, virtually, at least on this on this uh, blustery January Sunday. Thanks very much for being on Cheftimony. Well, thanks for inviting me. Why don't we start? I, I, I want to, of course, get into your restaurants because that's where I first learned of, uh, about you was going mm-hmm. to Persina in New York. But let's leave that for a little bit and start further back in your history. Um, I understand cooking it really has been a lifelong pursuit for you. Uh, do I have this right? You were born in Maine, but spent a good part of your youth growing up around the Mediterranean? That's correct. Uh, I was born in Maine, but we went overseas when I was six months old. And, you know, we definitely came back to visit people, but I didn't live here again until I was 15. And tell me about that experience growing up uh, around the Mediterranean. Now, you're, was that because of your parents' jobs? I understand one was a food writer and one a, or uh, and one a correspondent uh, foreign right. correspondent I mean it was really my dad's job uh he was the foreign correspondent and we moved at his whim as it were you know it was uh without over romanticizing it it was absolutely magical really you know i grew up in these very rural tiny communities as well as some city metropolises as well. But a lot of these places in the Mediterranean had basically, they had all been living their lives the way they had for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I didn't realize at the time, I don't think any of us did, how on the cusp of massive change everybody was. But, you know, I spent three years rambling through the back alleys of Bella Pace and wandering around, um, that's in Cyprus and, uh, you know, wandering around getting into trouble. I do remember once there was a lot of water irrigation and it was all very carefully regulated. Uh, you know, so-and-so's farm got from three to five and then it got changed and went over to somebody else's farm. And my friend and I, we thought it was incredibly clever, uh, the whole system. And so we, started diverting the water all over the place. Um, we got into a lot of trouble for that. Uh, <laughs> Early experimentation with farming techniques. Right, right, right. And then in uh, when I was eight, my parents had bought a tumble-down farmhouse in Tuscany, and we started going there on a regular basis. Ultimately, we would move there. We moved to Rome. My father got posted to Rome. And, uh, you know, again, it was... Uh, incredibly agrarian community that was still coming together when the wheat harvest came, you know, the entire village went from farmhouse to farmhouse helping to thresh. And, um, you know, the men worked all day with the threshing machine and harvesting the wheat. And then the women cooked all day. And, you know, at the end of the night, there was an incredible feast and there was dancing and accordion. And I swear to God, there was a full moon and it was all just really magic. It sounds it. It sounds it sounds out of a out of a movie, really. Right. 
you know, and I'll confess that I was not particularly interested in food. If you had asked me if I, you know, I was a picky eater, um, you know, and yet both, I mean, even living in Rome in the seventies, a lot of the produce sold at the market was grown by people on the outskirts of Rome. But, you know, I grew up picking blackberries off the bush and harvesting and eating fava beans in the garden when they were ripe and uh, without even understanding that. Or, you know, I would wake up in the morning in Rome to the smell at about four in the morning of bread uh, baking and rising. And I would eventually get up. It was my job to walk the family dog and I would go down to the bakery and I would buy two rolls for my brothers in my school lunch. So without being particularly interested in food, I was still immersed in it. In, in quality food, and I don't know that I would have thought much about it, except that I came back to America in 1981 to go to boarding school in Western Maine. And that's when I was like, okay, food doesn't taste very good anymore. What's going on? Can, can you give us an example, uh, maybe beyond the bakery, but of a dish or two or something that stands out from your childhood memories, say, in Rome, and then contrast um, that with what you, what you ran into when you came back in 1981? Well, I mean, I was uh, I was the carbonara child, right? That's what I ate. Um, nice. And there was also, you know, I mean, a really great example. Rome obviously has a huge tradition of pizza, and there's both the pizza that you eat in a pizzeria that's round and fired in a wood oven, and there's also um, these kind of trays of sheet trays of pizza that get hacked off. And, you know, do I want a dollar piece? Do I want a $3 piece? Uh, and kind of warmed and handed up to you. And I remember one of the things that I really couldn't understand in America was going to the little local uh, place that served pizza in the town that I went to school and asking for a tomato pizza and getting this pie with round slices of, you know, cardboard tomato all over them. And I just, mm. I, I didn't understand what the issue was. Um <laughs> Right. So did it, did it come down in large measure to, I guess I'm, I'm guessing it was a few things, but really the, the freshness of ingredients I'm guessing would have been a startling difference. between. Um, yeah. Yeah. The freshness of the ingredients, uh, you know, again, when I went to boarding school in Western Maine, there was no olive oil at the supermarket, you know, and mm-hmm. there's an ingredient that I never thought much about and yet was everywhere and in everything. And it just didn't, it just didn't exist. Right. It just plain didn't exist when you came back. Wow. Right. So, I mean, I think in, obviously in New York City and probably in other, you know, big urban environments, you could certainly buy olive oil, but not in a small town in Western Maine. And then take us from, from that time forward and the decision uh, about entering into cooking as a, as a professional pursuit. How did that come about? Well... You know, I sort of fell into working kitchens in my early 20s, and I liked the work. And eventually, I actually uh, went to work with a woman who was a friend of mine who was running a little pizzeria in Boston, and her name was Barbara Lynch. And I think it's the first time I was in a kitchen because I didn't, you know, I didn't go to the CIA, and I didn't really have any professional culinary training at all. But what I had was a real knowledge of how Italians ate at a time when, you know, the hot, the hot thing to cook in those days was Northern Italian food, as opposed to all that old Southern Italian food that people had thought of as Italian food in America for so long, which is right. really a very bastardized Italo-American food. 
So I had a, I had, well, I didn't have a lot of technique. I had a lot of knowledge and it was the first time uh, both she and Todd English was the owner really listened to me and gave me space to create and be involved. Um, and that was just terrifically exciting. And it kind of just went from there. And then I understand that after that, you circled back to uh, Europe for some time in terms of cooking. I Were you did. Back? Yeah, I did. I wound up going back to Italy for about three years and I did a bunch of different things there. And then I kind of decided, you know, it's, um, it's pretty hard to be an American chef in Italy. Uh, Italians don't really think Americans know anything about food at all. And, you know, it's a, I don't know, how do I say this nicely? Italy's a hard, it's a hard place to work really on so many levels and especially as a non-native. And I ultimately just decided that if I were to work in America, about six of the walls that were in front of me, we're going to, we're going to be automatically taken down. You're going to disappear. Okay. Right. And on a whim, I decided to go to New York partially because I just knew that I could get off the plane and get a job. Sure. And I was thinking that I could get a job as a cook somewhere and in fact, once I started, decided to come back and was thinking about it, I reached out to a friend of mine and she said, well, you know, there's this little Tuscan restaurant that just opened in the East Village that's getting a lot of attention and they're looking for a chef. And so I reached out to them and they were terribly excited. And it was interesting because I said to them, so this has long been my my thing. And, uh, you know, today everybody talks about quality and farm to table, but in the mid nineties, uh, when I was really getting into the kitchen world, I would say there wasn't as much attention paid to ingredients. They were harder to source ingredients, uh, local stuff. And it was, um, you know, obviously at a really high end, uh, restaurant, people were paying a lot of attention to it, but at your average restaurant, not so much. So I said to this person in conversation, uh, I was in Florence and she was in New York. I said, look, you know, the only thing I care about is quality, right? And if I can't, if you can't support my, my, you know, sourcing quality and making quality, then there's no point in like continuing this conversation. And that was sort of the exact right thing to say to her because that was what she wanted more than anything. Was, was that Ecopi? Is that the restaurant? That was, that was Ecopi. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting because I was reading when I was getting ready for our talk today, I read um, a New York Times review, and that was from 1999, which is starting mm -hmm. to feel like a few years back. Right. And part of what that said was about your work at Ecopi, the best main courses are a revelation. They are robust, but subtly different from almost anything on other Italian menus around town. Among them is a grilled wild striped bass with just the right crispness imparted by a wood-burning oven. A grilled pork chop served with mustard greens and a grilled sirloin steak served rare with arugula and shavings of Grana Padano should keep the steakhouses on their metal. So I, I, I love that quote. And it sounds like you were able to realize what you wanted to there. You, you must have found outstanding ingredients. I did. I mean, you know, it was New York City in 1999. So definitely. Uh, I mean, one of the things that was really interesting to me is Cavalonero, also known in English as Lacinato Kale. Um, or dino kale. So mm -hmm. that's kind of the, the uber Tuscan vegetable. And in fact, it was a vegetable that was not really known outside of Tuscany, right? It was just 
uh, might have been in Umbria a little bit. Now, today, that's being grown everywhere. But when I came to New York, what was really exciting is we actually, of all things, we found it at Dean and DeLuca. And we looked at the tags and called up the company. It was a company in California growing it and found the people who were distributing it in New York and brought it in and put it on the menu. And that was, you know, that was the kind of thing that it was fun and exciting to do in New York, to find this thing that nobody really knew what it was, but also made our foods to us so Tuscan. Can you give us your thoughts, Chef, on on this con- concept of, of authenticity in food? And I, I, I really want to hear your thoughts centered around this 1999 time, because I imagine it was different than it is now. And right. I, I'm well, thinking about it. Yeah. So there was one one quote that I read in a in a piece in The Atlantic that you had written that that talked about this concept of authenticity, but also talked about a, a restaurant in Italy using craft singles in their eggplant parmesan, right. <laughs> which, right. which really stood out to me. So. Right, right. So, you know, authenticity, it's a it's a hot word right now, right? Sure. Um, and it's something that I think about a lot. So, you know, I'm a 100% North, well, you know, as much as any of us can be North American person. Uh, who happened to grow up in a multitude of different cultures, primarily Italian, and I cook Italian food, right? And it's been very important to me as a non-Italian to kind of, and this was this was kind of my shtick in the early days of being a chef. Like, yeah, man, I knew what ribolita was. And not only did I know what ribolita was, I knew like three different ways of, you know, authentic ways of making ribolita. I knew what ribolita came from and where ribolita went. And and it was incredibly, you know, important to me. It was kind of my defining thing, right? I, I know this stuff inside and out. At the same time, watching Italian chefs, and if you think about it, right, Italy's filled with food products that all came from the Americas, from the discovery of the Americas, corn, beans, potatoes, chili peppers, tomatoes. Uh, none of that existed on the European continent before 1492. So food changes and moves all the time, right? And, you know, sometimes I'm getting all, again, because my shtick is always sort of like, well, how do I make this the most authentic way, right? How would I, mm-hmm. how would I make this if I were living in Florence right now? And yet, if you're actually Italian... You don't necessarily think that way. You're just like, oh, cool. These craft singles work really well and they do the job and and here we go. I think in that Atlantic article, I also talked about a woman putting Worcestershire sauce in her tomato sauce. And yes. I, was like, I was so puzzled by this and she just kind of looked at me like, yeah, but it tastes good, you know? Right, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If the goal right, is to make right, good tasty right. food. It just tastes good. And so, you know, food is not static, Right. But food is many, many symbolic and emotional things. So that thing that you ate that brilliant day at the beach once becomes the singular version of it. And there's no, there's no deviating, right? This is, this is the one true way. And, but if you open yourself up, of course, there's a million one true ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I was uh, particularly... I don't know the words to use for this, disturbed 
incensed, disappointed by Italo American food. And I know that this is a really, you know, this is a terrible thing for people to say, for me to say. And people, you know, are deeply, deeply tied to it. But it was, it was food that I didn't recognize on a number of levels. You know, first of all, when I was growing up in Italy, and of course, this has all changed completely, things were intensely regional. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I never saw balsamic vinegar growing up in Italy that existed in Modena. I never saw sun-dried tomatoes, which were an ingredient that were all the rage, I think, starting somewhere in the late 80s, early 90s in America. Those existed in the South. I knew nothing about Southern Italy and Southern food. And I actually, I have to say, in some ways, I'm kind of like, listen, there is no Italian food. There's only regional food. Right. But so I really, I didn't understand Italo-American food on a couple levels. I didn't understand the roots of it. And, you know, most of the Italo-American food that I experienced was in, frankly, shitty restaurants, you know, not in somebody's house where their grandmother who came from Italy was gardening and putting up pots of tomatoes and carrying on her traditions. But, uh, you know, the whole overcooked pasta on a plate with a chicken Parmesan thing, just, I, it just didn't, I didn't recognize it. And to most people, in America in those days, that was Italian food. So they didn't really understand what I wasn't recognizing. Um, right. Of course, this is this, all they'd ever been exposed to. Right. So in some ways, maybe my like focus on this is the real way that they do it in Italy also had to do with a little of kind of pushing back against that. Like, no, Italians don't, uh, you know, I mean, I had this thing for a long time. I was like, I don't know where the spaghetti meatball thing. And actually the spaghetti meatballs, I'd like to write a story about spaghetti and meatballs because so, you know, it was presented to me over and over again as Italian food. And I was just like, no, 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 no. 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 And I finally went to Puglia, discovered that actually they make an orecchiette in a tomato sauce with a little teeny tiny meatball in it. Now, the meatball is like the size of your thumbnail, right? It's <laughs> it's very no, different from a, a big, gigantic fist-sized or golf ball-sized thing. But there was, it existed, right? There were some roots to it. Now, today with tourism, I had a friend who was consulting at a restaurant in Rome, and he told me that their two number one dishes were pasta carbonara and spaghetti with meatballs. And why are they serving spaghetti with meatballs? They're serving spaghetti with meatballs because so many tourists come in and they think spaghetti with meatballs is Italian food. So, you know, they have it on the menu. Customer's always right. (laughs) Customer's always right. Now, you know, at what point is it not Italian food anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Like, it comes out of Italian origins. It's now being, well, it's probably not being cooked by Italians, but um, that's a different story. Uh, But, you know, it is in Italy. It's being presented. You know, I don't know. It's, It's really, it's hard. And, again, I feel like because I grew up, deep, deep in Italian culture and food. Italian food is something that I understand intrinsically really well. I'm also really, really fascinated by uh, Middle Eastern food and the food of the Southern Mediterranean, you know, uh, the Ark of the Levant, North, North Africa, all of that. And, you know, I spent time as a kid, both in Cyprus and in Lebanon, and I've traveled a little bit uh, in North Africa but I don't know that food the way I know this food. Mm-hmm. So 
one of the ways I entertain myself in the winter up here is to put on these Middle Eastern Thursday nights at the um, at the restaurant. Yes. And it's really, I mean, it's interesting. Like, it takes me down a lot of roads, but I don't feel comfortable simply being like, yeah, you know, we're not going to put pomegranate molasses on that. We're going to do honey instead, you know, just to throw off an example. Because I don't have that food coursing through my veins in the same way, you know? Right. Or that level of understanding. Oh. It takes it takes me much more. And, and I also, as a as a cook, and I find this across the board with anything, you have to cook something a couple times before you start deciding you're going to cook it differently. Fair enough. Fair enough. You got, you got to learn the rules before you break them. Yeah, kind of. Is there any, hmm, I'm not sure how to capture this. Is there any approach or rule that you could point to? Because this whole notion of authenticity is pretty slippery, but is it... Is it spending time with the cuisine? Is it changing only one ingredient at a time? Is it is there is there anything you can oh, speak to that's that's process around you know experimenting with food while keeping it on the authentic side? Well, so I feel like what people are actually really asking for is to give credit where credit is due. Okay, you know? that's helpful, yeah, and not to kind of be like, oh hey, you know, I I just thought this was a better idea. Like, but no, you know, so I've made carbonara this way and that way and this other way. And ultimately I feel like, you know, this is the way it's made, but somebody else or, you know, somebody in Rome might have a completely different idea Mm -hmm. um, and a different thought about it. I guess it's really about giving credit to the history of something sometimes. Right. Acknowledging where it came from and, and, and maybe how it's changed along the way. Right. And I mean, it's interesting because I see, you know, Italian food lumped in these days all the time with, you know, fancy European food that gets given a lot of credibility. But I actually think Italian food, it's only in the past 20 years that I think Italian food really vaunted in American culture to a level of high end. Mm -hmm. Um, And that before that, like so much of Oh, God, I don't want to use the word ethnic, but, you know, so much of different food or food that wasn't in the kind of American white bread canon. Now I lost my train of thought trying yeah. not to use the word ethnic or, <laughs> um, or ethnic, but but the rise of Italian food into the, the, the rise of Italian food. Right. I mean, it was considered cheap food, you mm-hmm. know. Food that, yeah, you know, you, you might go out for Chinese food, you might go out for Italian food. But on a special occasion, you're going to go out for French food. Right. You know, right. It's interesting for me to watch Italian food make that leap, you know. Mm-hmm. How how are the dishes changing or are they to be labeled as, you know, elite or upper echelon or whatever? I, I was speaking to a chef here in Vancouver who cooks northern Italian food. And he said, look, I'm not Italian. I've never cooked in Italy, but I cook Northern Italian food basically because the produce that we get around British Columbia is similar to the produce you get in Northern Italy. So the the approach right. to food works really well. But he's, his take was Northern Italian food is mostly about getting out of the way of the ingredients where French food is perhaps more about manipulation and, and <laughs> ego. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. Uh, does the approach have to change to make it, you know, to get it into this quote unquote elite level, or is it just sourcing better and better ingredients? 
I don't know, sourcing better and better ingredients, getting more and more attention to it, having more food writers write about how important that cuisine is. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I mean, I would definitely agree with that. I, I see a lot of older food writers kind of going on and on about how great, you know, the old style French restaurants were in New York, for example. Mm -hmm. I'm like, but that's not, not that I ate at a lot of old style French restaurants, but I just remember this whole idea of America as a, you know, giant wasteland of atrocious processed food. And, you know, even I think back to my struggles when I first started cooking to access, um, I mean, you know, when I first started in New York, there were two choices. There was, there was box meat, which meant it came through your purveyor. Uh, It was probably raised on a feedlot in Colorado or wherever um, with plenty of chemicals. And that was kind of it. And we originally sourced a small community of lamb farmers uh, up in Vermont, and they would bring down whole animals to us, whole lambs that we would then butcher. Um, And that was our that was the only way we got something different. Right. Mm -hmm. And today there is so now we can argue about, you know, there's a whole slide there, right? I mean, Nyman ranch pork is now owned by Purdue or something. I, you know, I I don't know. Right. I mean, Nyman ranch is still raising pigs to a certain standard. That standard's not as high as, you know, the multiple little farmers I have up here whose pigs are foraging wild in the forest all summer. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, to watch that that transition in ingredients or even, you know, when I first got to New York, if you wanted truly fresh produce, you had to go to the green market. And today that's just not the case. You know, there are people, you know, large, well, large, you know, smallish farms raising produce, sending it in on delivery to New York. Uh, the produce people are spending time and attention saying like, Hey, we're getting our fava beans from this farm, you know, um, in upstate New York, uh, da, 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 da. And that, that all just didn't exist. You know, mm-hmm. it was, it was much, much harder to get good Italian ingredients. And is that, yeah, yeah. Is that the key change that's allowed these restaurants to become high end? Maybe. I mean, yeah. I would go back to saying it's a, it's a combination, right? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, because Americans like to be told what to do. Right. And if they're, <laughs> if they're told that like Italian food is really, you know, you should go and spend $52 on a veal Milanese in this restaurant, they will. Interesting. What, why can you, can you spend a little more time on that? Why do you think that is like, why do Americans like to be told what to do? Is, is it due to a lack of confidence around food and culinary things? Um, yeah. I mean, again, you know, I go back and forth in this in, in Italy, right? So many of the farmers that I've bought from over the years here go home and throw a bag of microwave, whatever in the microwave and that's their dinner. Right. Okay. Yeah. When I, when I buy at a market in Italy, whether the person grew the food or simply bought the food and is selling the food, there's an intimate knowledge there of how I should cook it. Now, I might ultimately agree that there's something completely different that I want to do with it. And, you know, there's a lot of what I call Italian food police, too. There's take it too far. Hmm? I say that take it too far. 
Well, yeah, you know, Italians can be really, I mean, for such a anarchistic society and such a, you know, I mean, for instance, in French food, there's only one way to make bechamel, right? Yeah. Um, in Italy, you find a regional dish and every person who makes it will do it a little bit differently. Okay. Um, and if you go from village to village, they might do it completely differently. So for all, within all that freedom, Italians can still be like, no, this is the way you have to do it. You know, oh, you can't do that. Like, that would be ridiculous. Okay. Um, and no, Americans, for the most part, didn't grow up with this deep-seated food culture of, you know, uh, you do this with a plum tomato, you do this with uh, a round tomato, and you do this with a tiny cherry tomato, for example. And they may, Italians may, you know, it may even give them the confidence to break the rules, right? Yes. Whereas the Americans are looking for more guidance all the time on what the rules are, I'm guessing. Right. Right. Okay. Well, well Chef, let's move into some of the guidance that you've given, uh, particularly in New York. Can we start with porchetta and mm-hmm. and tell us about that experience? And I'm really curious because there was, there is a restaurant that opened in Vancouver, boy, I'm going to say five, six years ago now, called, I, and I I never had the chance to go to Porchetta in New York, but this place in Vancouver is called Meat and Bread. And it's a pretty simple operation. And the backbone of the operation is a delicious Porchetta sandwich. And, uh-huh. and it's just resonated with the city. And there are now multiple locations of this place. It sounds like you had uh, similar, perhaps greater success with Porchetta in New York. Right. So, you know, porchetta is one of those things I grew up eating. Uh, It was super traditional in Rome. And it was also a big thing where our family house is. There were always the trucks at market day. And it was like a thing, you know, get to Italy, go to market, have a porchetta sandwich. Okay, I'm home, you know. Right. Uh, I know my day is complete. Right. And a friend of mine had been spending time in Rome and she came back and she was like, "Uh, somebody's got to get on this porchetta thing. And I was kind of looking around for something to do. um, And I just, you know, I took it and kind of ran with it. Now, I knew that it would be, I mean, it was going to be a great pork sandwich. How, how unsuccessful could that be? Okay, fair enough. I didn't, I didn't really realize how much it was going to blow up. And of course, one of the reasons it blew up is because the economy tanked and all of a sudden it was an affordable luxury, right? Right, right. You not be able to go get that $52 veal milanese, but you can go get that $10 pork at a certain sandwich. The right time as well as the oh, right product. Right. right. Okay. And and tell us about the arc of that restaurant. And it's, it's echoed on a little bit, I think, in Porcina from time to time, hasn't um, it? Well, we tried, you know, ultimately, you know, Porchetta was really successful. We did really great business. And then that business slowly died off and died off and died off. And we supplemented it for a long time doing these street fairs, the smorgasbord thing that's been very successful and great. But in the end, you know, the minuses were bigger than the pluses and you just have to call it a go. So we tried to re-up it over at Porcena. We have a small sliver of a bar and we did it during the day at Porcena. But ultimately, I think it just it lived its life, you know. It ha- it had its run. Well, let's transition into Porcena. I've been saying it wrong. I've been saying Porcena, but Porcena. Mm-hmm. Uh, I discovered a few years ago. We tried to get to New York once a year. Uh, uh-huh. We had an absolutely smashing experience. I've since recommended it to friends. Mm-hmm. Um, 
what has been your goal with Persona? Well, so it's interesting because I, you know, we're actually at, this will be our 10th year at Porcena. Mm-hmm. Well, November will be our official 10th year anniversary. And that's, um, that's a goal that there were many times I didn't think we were going to make. And I'm, I'm kind of really proud and really like thinking about it a little bit. But I, so I've been looking back at some of the original stuff I wrote about it and, you know, my goals and my mission statements and stuff like that. And what I said over and over again was that I didn't want to make the flashiest, sexiest restaurant out there. I just wanted a really simple place that was kind of like what I grew up going to in Rome, where you kind of already knew as you walked in the door of the restaurant what you were going to have. Yep. And you might eat there three or four times a week. It wasn't maybe the place that you were going to go to celebrate your new your new job or your engagement, but you were going to know that you could go in and get a comforting plate of pasta. And ultimately that is so what Porcena is. Um, yes. And I'm really happy about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, the comforting plate of pasta that you talk about. So every time I've been, I have had the anelone with lamb sausage, the mustard greens and the spicy breadcrumbs. Mm-hmm. Has, has that been a mainstay? Has that been consistent on the menu? It, when we it were- has. That's our okay. number one top selling dish. It's I mean, so amazing. I'm sure somebody who does restaurant menu design and consultancy could have things to tell me about it all. I mean, sometimes I think like, shouldn't we have three or four of those? But it's the it's the number one dish. It's the dish that everybody loves that everybody has over and over again. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Well, I don't know that you would want three or four because when I think of Porcena, that's the dish that comes to mind. Right. And when we were back most recently in. Uh, October, our server steered me back to that. I was thinking about branching out. We tried some changes in the, in the appetizers, Mm -hmm. Um, but I was delighted to do it. Now that's me speaking as somebody who's lucky if I get there once a year, but Mm -hmm. so I I would encourage you not to change it. (laughs) Right, right. Oh no, no, I would, I don't, I don't want to change it. That's for sure. (laughs) Okay. Can you talk about some of the moving on to some of the challenges in the industry challenges challenges as a chef? I'm I'm curious about your thoughts on the New York scene, but one challenge I think that would happen no matter where you are is navigating that balance between stepping in and stepping back as a chef and an owner and and one right. quote of yours that that stuck with me was this. You said, people seem ready to kill each other one week and the next they are moving in together. It's part of the challenge I have discovered in restaurant work. We work so closely that it's hard not to be sucked into people's emotional drama. Has, yeah. has that repeated uh, throughout your career? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm a woman. <laughs> okay. and so being like screaming, screaming chef never really worked for me very well. Um, Mm -hmm. people just tended to quit. So I definitely, you know, over the years have probably taken more of the like stern mother approach in terms of being a boss, but it was a transition from being is one thing to be chef, but I'm still an employee with everybody else to being the owner. Right. And having to kind of set some real boundaries that I'm not always great at setting. I mean, you know, some of my best friends are still people who work for me. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, 
But, you know, sometimes it's like, no, I can't. Yeah, I want to go out and like hang out with you guys all night. But I kind of I, I can. I need to set some of those boundaries. You guys need to work things out for yourself. And um, I can't just be I can't be part of the group all the time, you know, all the time. Right, mm-hmm. right. Because ultimately, if something has to be decided and can't be any other way, you're the one who's going to do it. Right, right. What is it like operating? This is a terrible question, so I'll pu- try to put some focus on it. I was going to say, what is it like operating a restaurant in New York City? And what I'm thinking is the challenges in terms of cost and real estate must be through the roof. I know for friends who do it in Vancouver, it's a challenge. It must be just a whole other world in New York. Right. Well, so yeah, there's a few things. There's some things that I didn't understand at all, and um, I wish I had. And one is that in New York, generally on commercial real estate, you pay a percentage of the real estate taxes. Okay. Yeah. And those those real estate taxes can go up that has nothing to do with you or the building owner or anything. It's just the city. <laughs> and very right. early on at Porcena, within about the first two years that we were there, our real estate taxes doubled. And that was harsh, you know? Of course. Um, I don't know if there's any way around it. I don't know if you can negotiate a lease where you don't pay those real estate taxes. And the other thing that happened right around the time I was opening Porcena is that the health department opened up their letter grade. Um, right. Yes. The, the letter grade in the window system. Right. And we're all very careful about what we say about the health department because we suspect them of being kind of vindictive, but you know, it's been treated by the city and it's a documentable fact that the revenue that came into the city from health inspection fines tripled in the year after that letter grade went in. And I absolutely think that, you know, people need to know that they're eating food in a safe place and that that could be regulated. I question I, I just think it could be done a different way where it's not quite as punitive. And right. I also will say this, that in order to be a health inspector, I think you pay about $170 and you do a class out somewhere. Yeah. You don't have to have any knowledge of food at all. Unlike say a building inspector. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and we are also all treated the same, whether we're a McDonald's, a, Del Posto, which is a three-story restaurant with multiple kitchens at, you know, the highest level or a Chinese takeout shop on the corner. Right. And the story that I like to tell everybody about the health department and health inspections. So what they're really rewarding is not farm fresh food cooked in a really loving way. They're, Mm -hmm. It's all about science and cold and hot and how you store food. And so, you know, the easiest way to do all this is to buy pre-made food that comes in frozen and you simply throw it in a fryolator or a uh, microwave when it comes time to serve it. Uh, but Yeah, nice and three, safe. About three or four years into this system, there was a food production place that was busted. We'll call it in Queens, but who knows? It might've been Brooklyn somewhere. And so these food production places are not inspected by the health department. They're inspected by something else. I think it's farm and agriculture or something, and it's a much more relaxed system. So they were busted 
There was a mountain of pineapple in the center of the warehouse that had a rat's barren in it. Um, there were pigeons swooping through the facility. And then the people preparing the food were smoking doing it. Now, <laughs> they were preparing Mexican and Chinese food for small restaurants around the city that did precisely this, bring in frozen product, throw it in a fryer later or a microwave. I just wish more people understood that, you know, it's it's got less to do with temperature sometimes and more to do with general respect, right? Right, right. And, and, and love of what you do. So if you don't give a shit, if you're just making a buck, you're going to buy the cheapest thing you can and you're going to do the least amount you can to it. If yeah. you care about your food, you're not going to put something old and funky on the plate anyways. Um, no, no. You're not going to use unsafe procedures. You're going to be extremely careful. Because you're going to, of course, th to state the obvious, you're going to want to give your guests the best experience. Right. So, yeah. Do you, do you think the market in, in many ways regulates its – that's a dangerous question, I suppose, but, <laughs> but regulates itself, right? Like people <laughs> – People do make, I mean, people, I think, make intelligent choices or can make intelligent choices about where they want to go. So you have well, a great experience right. somewhere and you go back. So I'm, you know, as liberal as they come. Sometimes mm -hmm. I might like to say, if you stand to the left of me. And uh, I always say the health department brings out my inner tea partier. Um, right. I'm always like market regulation. If you make people sick, then you'll, you know, people won't go there anymore. Right. Right. Um, right. But yeah, people don't really want to hear that. <laughs> right. Very interesting. I'm, I'm planning a future episode on regulation of the industry. So I'm, uh, yeah, no, I love, I love the talk. Right. Let's get back, um, back to the food. Can you tell us about your, your output, not outpost, your, your, because it's outside of New York, but your restaurant in Rockport, is it Nina June? Am I pronouncing that right? Nina June. Nina June. Nina June. Okay. Yeah. My Aunt Nina will be happy to right. hear that. You know, I've been wanting to get up to Maine for a while. I mean, again, as a kid, we would come here and talk about frozen food in the box going in the fryer later. That's what you ate, right? That's you ate you lobsters got. down the shore. Sure, those were fresh. Uh, fried clams. Let's not think too much about it. Uh, you know, all of that. And that was kind of what was here. And then again, over the past 15 years, I started watching some really interesting changes in Maine from, you know, produce that was available at farmers markets, farmers markets themselves, small, quirky kind of things. Like there's this crazy bakery up in Blue Hill called Tinder Hearth that bakes fabulous bread and croissant and a big wood-fired oven twice a week. And then on those nights when they light the oven to bake at the end of the evening, they cook at the end of the day, they cook pizzas and they have a big backyard and everybody kind of lines up and comes in for uh, pizzas. Wow. Um, sounds brilliant. And you know, it's very, what's the word I'm, I'm looking for organic in the way it grew and came about and all of that. And I find a lot of that up here in Maine. And then also looking at the restaurants that were opening, the realization that people were open to this. We had a place open in Camden 10 years ago that was Thai food. I mean, you know, every town in America has a Thai food place, but this was a classically trained Thai chef. You know, he didn't start out maybe as a Thai chef. He started out as a French chef uh, and he wound up here 
at a restaurant that quickly failed and he bounced around and then he opened this tiny little place. And, you know, it was some of the best Thai food I'd had since I'd been out on the West Coast uh, years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, uh, really great ingredients, cooking them really well, innovative, interesting flavors. But again, what's fascinating to me is it's one of the most popular restaurants in our community. Uh, we have a sushi restaurant in the town next door. That's a Japanese woman came to a language school here, fell in love with the owner, married him and wound up teaching herself to make sushi and opening up this restaurant, which again is really based on local seafood and local availability and her take. So I really, you know, it, it reminded me in ways that New York doesn't because despite the fact that in New York we've got so many farmers markets and farm to table restaurants it's still it's a vast industry and it's a huge city right sure <laughs> and what what I loved growing up in Rome is you would see the chefs and the owners of the restaurants we ate at shopping at the market in the morning now I doubt you see that a whole lot either anymore but that's kind of my romantic idea of about the way restaurants work. And it kind of always has been, you know, what goes on your menu is really dependent on what's fresh and what you find and, and the connections that you have with people. This fall, I had somebody, you know, so he, he dives for sea urchin, sea urchin, and he takes them down to a processor in Portland and sells them for a decent amount of money. But he would bring me a bucket of sea urchin at the end of the day and kind of trade it for a couple shots of whiskey at the bar. So I had this sea urchin in my hand that had just gotten pulled out of the ocean. I mean, it was like unlike anything we ever get to taste. Yeah. Um, and it's those connections that really feel ultimately like the Mediterranean that I grew up in. Beautiful. That's, that's circling back for me to the concept that we started with at the beginning of authenticity, right? It may not be the exact dish that you had right. in Rome 20, 30 years ago, but sounds like the concept is the same. Right, right, right. Well, listen, Chef, I've just got a few more questions, um, and then I will let you go. I know we've been at it for a while. Okay. One, one thing, a, f- a few things I like to ask professional chefs, there's always a lot of focus on what restaurants can do for customers, of course, and it's mm-hmm. a very competitive industry with uh, chefs and restaurants continually upping their game. Do you have any thoughts on what diners themselves can do, how they could improve their own experiences before they even walk through the door or after they walk through the door of a restaurant? Well, so I find a lot of people come in with a kind of preconceived notion of what they're going to have or eat or what's correct, you know? And I find that a lot of the problems happen where they're totally in flight, you know, they're sort of trying to impose their taste on the restaurant. Yes. Yeah. Um, as opposed to maybe being flexible, like, Hey, I really, you know, or I don't know, I'm highly allergic to the farro that you put on that dish. So what I get a lot of is make it this way for me instead, as opposed to saying, you know, kind of how can you change it? Because sometimes people want to change things for very legitimate reasons. Mm hmm. But I don't think it's going to work. It's not going to work with the dish. I'm happy to like modify the dish in a yep. way that I think is going to work. Right. But, um, but leave it to me, please, because I'm the chef. <laughs> right, right. And like, and you know, it's a menu, not a list of ingredients. And work with us, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Engage. That's something I hear a lot from people within the industry, whether it's front of house or back of house, is mm-hmm. you, we as guests can do ourselves a lot of favors by just genuinely engaging with the people at the restaurant. <laughs> right. There sometimes seems to be this real antipathy, you know, between customers and restaurants. And I'm not sure where that comes from. I mean, I see it whenever we're talking about the health department, people, you know, talk like we're all trying to poison everybody. Or there's this suspicion that restaurateurs are sitting on a pot of gold, counting all their money and, you know, unwilling to shell out for health insurance um, because they're so greedy. Right. You know, and um, and we're not. We're hardworking people. We're running a business for sure, you know. Yeah. And we'd like it to be a positive, not a negative. And I suppose restaurateurs sometimes give that antipathy back too, you know. Like, what do you mean you want it without the faro? Like, mm-hmm. screw you. Right. You know? Yeah. So maybe if everybody could take a deep breath and realize that we're all, you know, we're all in this together, right? Mm-hmm. And should be working toward the same experience. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's what's something you would recommend that people try at home when they're cooking, whether that's a a technique or a an ingredient or a piece of equipment? Is there, is there something that you've seen that stands out to you that home cooks could be doing that they're not that would improve their own cooking game? So I actually think the biggest thing that home cooks can do to to improve their cooking game is use mise en place, right? Ah, yeah. Like measure everything out ahead of time. And especially, I mean, I'll tell you, if I'm making a new recipe that I've never made before, and generally this is something more in baking where a certain amount of precision is required, sure. um, I I measure everything out and lay it out. And then it's just like, boom, boom, boom. Okay, you know, melt this, whisk that, beat that, and it's all right there. And it makes it a lot easier as opposed to like futzing about. Absolutely. Reaching through the back of the cupboard, trying to find the whatever you're looking for. Right. Totally. Okay. And can you give us a dish, Chef? Something that you can, this is another favorite question of mine for the for the pros. Is there something that you can describe quickly? Doesn't even have to be a recipe per se, but um, a, a dish that you can describe in 30 or 60 seconds and people can put together in under 30 minutes, something delicious to cook at home. So <laughs> I kind of never... I'm never not in love with pasta pomodoro, right? Oh, yeah. It's it's my desert island thing. Uh, you have dried pasta in the pantry. You have a head of garlic. You have some olive oil. You have a can of tomatoes. And, you know, maybe you have some Parmesan cheese and some herbs, right? Mm-hmm. But at its simplest, I will crush a clove of garlic and fry it up in a little olive oil and add the tomatoes boil the pasta in abundantly salted water and toss it with that tomato sauce. And I'm, I'm as happy as anything. As anything. I love it. Simple, classic, delicious, right? Right. Right. (laughs) Beautiful. Well, listen, chef, thank you so much for joining me where um, I'll put links to your social media handles. Is that the best place for people to follow what you're up to and your website? Yeah, probably Instagram more than anything, really. Okay. Okay, fair enough. And there's there's the Porcena Instagram, which I actually don't run. Mm-hmm. And then there's a 9 of June Instagram, which I do run. Okay, I will put links to all of those. And any travel plans coming up, including uh, Canada? By any chance? <laughs> I'm, actually, I'm actually trying to go to Montreal. I've been trying to go to uh, Martin Picard's Cabano Souk for a couple of years, and I think I'm actually going to do it at the end of February. Going to make it happen. Wonderful. 
All right. I'm going to make it happen. Well, welcome to Canada in advance. And thank again, you. Chef, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Chef, for such a great talk, for all of the wonderful meals that I've had so far at Porcena, and here's to many more to come. Can't wait to be back in New York City again and back at Porcena. And of course, thank you for joining me here as always for the Chef Timoni podcast. I really appreciate you choosing to spend time with me and with my guests, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Remember, you can avoid the hassle of ever having to download the Chef Timoni podcast again simply by subscribing to the show. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or really pretty much anywhere that you find your podcasts. As always, I ask that you take just a few seconds to give a star rating to the show. Again, Apple Podcasts works really well for that or really any of the other podcast apps and directories. And if you have a little more time to spare, please consider leaving a written review for the show. I would really appreciate you doing either or both of those things. As always, Cheftimony is way more fun when it involves some interaction with the listeners, which is all to say I love to hear from you. So if you've got a comment for the show, a question, if there's a topic suggestion perhaps, or you know a chef or a lawyer who could be a good fit for the show, please just get in touch. You can do that on social media. You can reach me through Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or just send me a good old-fashioned email to graham at cheftimony.com. We've got a lot more great interviews coming your way this season, and I'm really looking forward to sharing those with you. For now, though, that is all for today. I'm Graham McLennan. I'll see you next Friday, right here on Chef Timonium.